and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm really delighted to have Corporal Mark Splash Ashton, the author of the book SAS Seeking Down. Now, it's a hell of a good listen or a good read. I recommend it to all of you out there. And it's particularly the sort of gritty real life stories. Many generals write lots of books about the SAS and things like that. But when you've got a soldier who writes their story in a way that has humility and you can relate to it. And certainly uh, I was in the army at the time of the Falcons War, which is particularly the focus of this uh, this book, even though his career spanned a, a larger one. It's well worth a read. And there's lots of lessons for us, whether you've been in the military or not, certainly for lessons for leaders in business who listen to this as much as those in the military. Without further ado, welcome, Mark. Good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. So so tell us, um, you know, why did you decide to to write the book? And because, I mean, the Falcons War was back in 80, 81, 82, wasn't it? 82. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's like 21 years ago but uh everybody's really enjoyed the book what, what do you think has been the appeal has people told you what they liked about it uh because it's down to earth um the, i haven't my my um desire of it was to produce the book that wasn't a big i am yeah you know there's a, several of these books have come out now that have really done the regiment a disservice and I wanted this to be a proper down to earth. This is what it was really like type book. Yeah. And uh, that was the reason. Yeah. And it is so interesting. I'm discussing with a couple of Navy SEALs um, some of their stories. And before you, I've had a number of uh, SAS soldiers and officers on the program. And I think it's really important that people keep their ego in check. And one of the things that, um, was was lovely about um our mutual friend um who introduced us was that he said look you know mark has a lovely humility and a humanity about him the stories are are really real and we can relate to them so uh, that's that's what i enjoyed and i i've i've listened to it and really enjoyed it couldn't couldn't stop listening to it it was a really good read um we mention often people who've inspired us and uh, when you and I talked about it, you talked about uh, Company Sergeant Major Lawrence Gallagher of uh, D Squadron 22 SES, who sadly was killed while out there in the Falklands. Um, and and also you talked about Cedric Dells, the squadron commander who went on to be Lieutenant General Sir Cedric Dells. Do you want to just tell us a bit about why you chose those two and, and what qualities they had that you think, in your mind, make them inspiring leaders with lessons for us today? Well, Lawrence was like a, a gentle giant. He was about he was about six foot six, six foot seven tall, big man. He didn't have to um, uh, back up anything he said, if you know what I mean. You you, you immediately did as you were told. But he was a very um, kind man, uh, full of advice, always there if you if you needed um, 
help in any, any way whatsoever. But at the same time, he was a powerful person. And um, I thought that he was something that I really should have, who I should look up to and try to aspire to be uh, um, similar to. Mm. Cedric Delves was um, the company commander or the squadron commander when we went to the Falklands. Um, he could have sat back and sent the patrols out um, and sat back in the ops room and just monitored everything, but he didn't. We had a very um, dodgy task given to us where we had to go forward onto Mount Kent, uh, which is 60 miles in front of everyone else's lines. There had been no support for us um, to hold the ground until three para and four two commando could get to us. So rather than send just one of the patrols out to um, do a recce, he went himself. Mm. Uh, and to me, that was leadership. And mm. uh, another person I really aspire to um, look up to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great story. And in fact, even just speaking to CEOs in business today, one of the key messages is don't expect others to do a job you wouldn't do yourself. But that doesn't mean you have to get down into the weeds of doing everybody else's job for them and micromanaging them. You do need to step back. You needed Cedric to make some of the strategic decisions about, you know, the attack on uh, on Pebble Island, on taking out the Picaras and things like that and thinking where next and where to put the OPs and stuff like that. So I think from what you've said and from your book, um, what struck me was that you joined 22 SAS having been a staff sergeant, you know, a senior non-commissioned officer in your own regiment, which I think was the Gloucesters. Was that right? Your regiment? That's right, yeah. In the Gloucesters, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, to, to get to that rank in your own regiment and then go back, initially you become a trooper, but you were a corporal. It Like, you take a real hit, but yet your credibility with everybody else you meet is so much bigger. And also the strategic uh impact of the work you do way bigger and also the kind of people who you talk to and give advice to and even throughout your career as i was reading about the other jobs that you've had and you were telling me about that you get given a degree of respect that was way in excess of what you'd get in a normal infantry battalion is that fair my understanding yeah, that's true we always said um all my friends have said exactly the same thing is that the the color of the berry immediately immediately makes you worth listening to <laughs> yeah yeah you know, so um you could if we said something people listen um yeah. whereas before where you're wearing a crap hat then you um <laughs> you get said oh yeah thank you very much color and that's about it you know yeah and <laughs> and the, the expression a crap hat for those listening who've never been in our army jargon you you had those who were in the parachute regiment who were very proud of having their maroon berry the sand-coloured berry of the SAS, but a crap hat was any other hat that um, wasn't in it. it. There's almost like pecking order between different tribes. Um, but but yeah, you went into a very different, uh, difficult selection process. And many years ago, no one talked about the SEALs, no one talked about the SAS or the SBS. But then came the time when the dam broke. And I think it was um, De La Bilia, who wrote his book, which actually must have upset a lot of people because you just didn't write about it. You didn't talk about the operations because, of course, that could compromise them for terrorists and other people listening to them. What went on at the time when suddenly there was then a flood of, of books? What was your view of what had happened? 
Well, at the time, I was in agreement with with everyone else that people shouldn't be writing books. Mm. And <laughs> you know, this is a bit two faced at me, really. But um, we shouldn't be writing books. Um, humility comes into it, modesty or whatever. Um, uh, and a lot of the books that are being written, um, are Bravo Two Zero, mm-hmm. excellent read, but absolute fiction. Yeah. Yeah, and it d- did not do the regiment any um, favors at all doing that, and that yeah. that was one another one of the reasons that I wanted my book not to be in that genre. Yeah, yeah? I wanted it to be proper, um, straightforward, and the truth. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's what comes across. And um, I, I think there's a danger that people make. Uh, SEALs or SAS or SBS uh, soldiers and officers into some kind of Superman that uh, nothing goes wrong, no problems happen. But in SAS Seeking Down in your book, there's all sorts of situations that go terribly badly wrong. Um, And and we'll we'll talk about them in a a moment or two. But but I'm just interested in, in what shaped you. I mean, now you're 75. Uh, you've had a, a hell of a life, uh, even in an element of that, but you've you've packed in an awful lot. And now, am I right? You're doing endurance, long distance yeah. running. What what are you doing now? Ultra running, yeah. Ultra, ultra running. running. And how far is a an ultra race? Well, I only do the short ones. I only do the fifty k's. <laughs> only do the fifty kilometers. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm lucky. My wife does them as well, so we do it as a pair. You know, so I've got company. Yeah. Um, yeah, we work it. We work. We work well together. You know, I, if I'm having a hard time, she'll turn around and tell me, "Don't be a tart. Get on with it." <laughs> she sounds like just the lady you need, and I think <laughs> anybody else wouldn't be good enough. I'm very lucky to have a wife um, like that. I mean, I think I, I'm on my second wife, and it tends to be my last wife. I think you're on your third wife. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. 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 Enough, said, enough said. Enough said. <laughs> but actually, it raises an interesting point that that you know military service does have a very tough impact i was you know 20 years in the military and particularly people in special forces um their marriages very often uh crumble and fall apart under the pressure of always being away never knowing where you're going and you can't tell them where you're going so there are of course some of the philanderers who who make up that they're in the sas or they're in mi6 and and they keep disappearing for their other relationship Uh, that's an aside sort of fantasy fantasies but (laughs) but in in the military and particularly when you're on a lot of tours and a lot of duties as you did it 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 does put a real strain on did you see that not just for yourself but for others that that the strain breaks up many marriages or or distances parents from children very much so very much so i think i only know a few people who kept the same wife Certainly, from when they they joined the regiment, um, the, those wives that came from outside with them uh, never lasted. Yeah, it, it was suddenly a bit, just too much from yeah. a, a lot of them, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, even in a different way, uh, uh, for those listening, you won't see, but I've got some pictures on the back wall, which is uh, one of my father, a fast jet pilot with the fleet air arm, and and their wedding. Um, um, in, in their day. You know, they'd go away for six months to a year in the Far East, as it was called, and there was no way of communicating. 
you know, they my mother would occasionally, as the commanding officer's wife, try and slip in to a, a telex that they were sending to the ship that, you know, um, Sailor uh, Johnson's wife has just had a baby boy or there's a real problem with so-and-so. Could he come back? And, you know, the answer was no, they can't come back. You know, they just got to crack on. And so people had whole lives that they lived separate from each other. And then when they came back, the ones who tried to take over again and be the man in charge, that never kind of worked well. That the, the wife had to sort of carry on running the show because suddenly, like you were, at short notice, you just come back, you're off again. And and it was it required a real quality person to be able to cope with that, don't you think? Oh, very much so. Um I I remarried in um it was December eighty one, late mm-hmm. December eighty one. And in the new year, I we went to Kenya for a couple of months and then came back from that. We had a week back in in UK and then we went um, to the Alps doing mountaineering and stuff like that. And we, were give, we, we came back and we were given two weeks leave. And then within three days of that two weeks leave, we were, we were off to the Falklands. Mm. It was as quick as that. Yeah. Yeah, no, just deep respect for you and the guys who went through that and their families, because it, it is a, a system. It's a family system and it has an impact on the children, too, who perhaps don't see the father that they knew or in the case of, you know, John Hamilton or Lawrence, you know, the father didn't live. And um, in, in the case of my father, you know, I was two and a half when he was killed flying, saving the life of two other people. But he died in the process and and you know i still miss him and i'm in my 60s and you you really never quite come to terms with it so it isn't just the individual who goes off to to fight but it's the whole family that are left left hanging so deep respect for you and and all that you've you've been through uh, mark let's uh, you know, the, the kind of man you are today and the kind of man that went to the falklands there was an upbringing that comes with that and i'm always interested in the kind of upbringing, because, you know, going to go and do selection for the SAS, it's really tough. And and I've done sort of elements of it in preparation for doing it. But then I was in a car crash and ended up in hospital. And I, I just realized I was perhaps I might never get in or my back might not hang up to it because it was whiplash and the collapsed lung and things like that. So I, I always aspired to get in, but never went for selection. But but you did, and you got in first time, and a, a number of people I know had to go back a second time. Um, what was what was the selection like in the days when you did it, and what did you find hard, and and what kind of mental attitude allowed you to get through it when it was so grueling? Well, the whole thing about selection is that um, no one ever turns around and says you're not good enough, or you um, tells you to to stop doing it. If I, you know what I mean, you got you you start on on week one and you're into it, and you keep doing it, and the only thing that pushes you through is you. If anybody want anybody that leaves, are leaving because they want to leave, or they've been or injured enough to to leave. The the um the SES um directing staff don't tell you to hurry up. They don't um, give you any encouragement whatsoever. <laughs> um, you just uh, get pointed A to B, you do it, and 
it gets harder. Each day gets harder as you go along. And then the final week, uh, after a month, you're, you're traipsing about the, the beacons. The, the last week, you start off with um, a rifle and 35 pound on your back, and the distances go up every day. And then the weight goes up every day until at the end of the end of that test week, you've got half a hundred weight on your back and a rifle, and you've got to do um, 40 miles in, in my case, it was 19 hours. But they don't tell you that it's the 90, it's 19 hours. You have just have to go balls out best you can and do it as fast as you can and arrive at the end. And then I, I knew guys that went through the whole six-month selection process and were told, sorry, we don't want you. So you don't know. You're just always the whole time. There's like the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. You just wonder whether you're going to be told to to go. And that's that's what it's like. And that must be so hard, unless you have quite a drive and a motivation in you to not be outer focused of what others think of you. And but you've got this inner drive now. You went and did it. I think were you a sergeant or a staff sergeant when you did selection? Because you was that... staff sergeant. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know whether that was a, a help to you, but certainly you'd by that stage accumulated a lot of infantry experience. And when I when I heard your book and what you had to do and the amount of kit you were carrying at times, staggering along with all the, the green Nazis of mortar rounds around you and the extra weight and radios and radio batteries, it, it made all the selection training that you're doing essential. Because you had to actually do the thing you trained for. Wasn't that the case? That's true. I mean, the selection was hard, but I did so many things that were much harder after I got into the regiment. Mm. You know, you, 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 it's a good preparation. The, the great thing about selection is that you, everyone that passes it, you know are at a certain standard and you know what they can do. In a normal infantry regiment, all the the only thing you know about the person he got through basic training you you don't know whether you can trust him you don't know whether he can navigate or anything like that but mm. in the regiment you know exactly what beast you've got with you that's so interesting because uh you and i were talking beforehand about I, I had two years as a platoon commander with the second battalion scots guards just in the year after they'd uh, come come back from the Falklands. They were recovering in Cyprus, and it was a real honour to command a, a, a guards platoon. But when talking to the lance sergeants and the corporals there, and the and the guardsmen, they said what was very interesting. Unlike what you were describing, because there wasn't a selection to get in in the same way, and the word is just used selection, and everybody knows selection means going for the SAS. That that they didn't know who was going to be good and who wasn't, you know, what someone's like marching up and down the mall on in a, in a bear skin and a tunic and looking very strong and fine. That person completely crumbled when in the wet bog and, you know, the ship had just been bombed of the Welsh guards and they were trying to get up to tumble down and they didn't cope at all. Well, whereas the complete rogue who was often in jail and had been a meth drinker <laughs> in Glasgow before he joined he was the one lining up the 60-60s, firing up the rocks at the Argentinian 5th Battalion and, and telling the platoon commander to get on and get going. 
And, and, and so it was almost like topsy-turvy world. You didn't know what people were going to be like. Any, any thoughts on that, Mark? Oh, I, I agree entirely. That, that's, I think I was lucky that I actually went to a, a real war with the SAS because we knew exactly what we've got, you know, mm. and uh, the guys were t- guys are tough. They do. And you know that he's got your back. Yeah. You know, you, you trust him implicitly. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. And, and, difference. and we were talking about upbringing. I mean, what kind of upbringing, who, who were the role models for you that, that gave you this kind of mental resilience and physical resilience, which lasts you throughout your time in the Gloucesters and, and in the SS? Well, when I, I first joined the battalion uh, as, as a, a very young 17-year-old, um, I was put into a, a rifle platoon, and the, the, the platoon sergeant was a guy called Roy Watkins. Now, Roy had done his national service, had gone out, come back in, and he was like 15 years older than me as a, as a platoon sergeant. And he was the epitome of what a rifle platoon sergeant should be. Mm. He was an upright, a good man. You didn't screw him around and he because he wasn't above giving you a cuff around the head. Like, you know, but he was a good guy. And he would he looked after us, you know. That you we were his boys, and he made sure that we weren't screwed over at all. Like you know, but um, I really liked him, and he he was I he was another one that I tried to um, emulate throughout my service. A good man. Yeah, it, it is nice when you meet special people, and I just want to uh, think about good men that you and I have met over the time. Just call out uh, Jose Sanchez who yeah. uh, introduced us both. And how did you get to meet uh, Jose? Because he was in the parachute regiment, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was with, I met him when he was with the 4Para, which is the, the um, territorial or reserves regiment. Um, yeah. And uh, in reality, I only met him uh, when I went up to Leicester to 4Para to do a, a talk for them up at um, their, their um, HQ up there. Yeah, yeah, well, lovely guy. And, 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 he did the the battlefield bike ride at uh, raising money for help for heroes the 500 kilometers that we did and he said to me the man you need is mark i really loved his talk and has written this great book and that kind of stuff so i i just want to call out jose um what a great great guy with a lovely balanced view of life i think i think had he had his world differently i think he would have yeah. been a good good man to have in a trench with um so fascinating experience you you ended your time uh, as a regimental sergeant major um involved in infantry trials and things like that fascinating uh roles that you had over the years but let's spend a bit of time on on the time of the falcons war because uh i can't imagine what it was like as you were going up to the glacier on south georgia uh is it the fortuna glacier is that right that's right yeah yeah uh, and then not only one helicopter crash, but two helicopter crashes in complete whiteout, almost impossible conditions and storm. And you had to survive on the glacier for a bit. Do you want to just tell us a bit about that, Mark? Well, basically what had happened was um, we were tasked to go up onto the Fortuna Glacier, which is about five miles from the whaling station. They wanted us to, to observe. And um, it took three attempts to get up onto the glacier to start with because the um, high winds, blizzard conditions, and the rest of it. But the pilots got us up there. 
dropped us off, and they the pilots then went. We we roped up and started moving up the glacier, and we could only go about a mile because the conditions were so horrendous. The winds were hurricane winds, so we decided to stay that um, to leak her up for the night and um, see what it was like the next day. Well, in any case, the next the next morning, it was absolute pandemonium. There was blokes. There was tents had been blown away, and I think there was one tent that was up, and there were six guys sat in it. That's what was holding it up. There's blokes underneath sleds and stuff like that. And uh, we got a met check um, from from squadron headquarters, and they said, um, "Yeah, the the weather's going to change, but it's not going to get better." <laughs> so we we said, well, we're we're in shit state here. Um, we're going to start losing people if we don't don't withdraw. So um, they said, okay, we'll get some aircraft up to you. Well, the aircraft turned up, and uh, three three helicopters, a Mark Mark Five anti-submarine helicopter, and two Mark Three troop carrying helicopters. And the way they'd been flying, because it was whiteout conditions, was that the 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 lead helicopter was the Mark Five because he could had radar and he could or sonar or whatever he could see the ground. The other two helicopters were using him, okay, as their horizon. So while wow. he was up, they knew they were up. Any case, we all piled onto these helicopters and we flew off down the glacier. Now, because the glacier sort of was going down towards the sea. The lead helicopter dipped out of sight and the second helicopter lost his horizon and flew into the ground. So he just crashed. So we, we landed. I was in the third helicopter. We landed and me and a few of the other guys went across and started helping the guys out of the first helicopter. And um, uh, the sorry, the, the second helicopter, the one that had crashed. The first helicopter came back and then said, um, I can't take any of you. I'm that low on fuel. I'm going to have to go back. Um, okay. So we straight. Um, so what happened was we then p- piled onto the Mark III. Mm. Okay. All of us on it. And we went in the same thing again where the Mark V flew down the glacier. Our pilot lost his horizon when he went out of sight and we crashed as well. So we're sort of. Um, when I say crash, it was like a traffic accident. We were, weren't very far off the ground at all, mm. and uh, so we piled out of that. The the um, the Mark Three said, "I've got no fuel left. I can't take anybody. I'm going to go back down and refuel." And we thought, "Right, that's it. We won't see him until tomorrow, like." And uh, so we got out the life rafts and we uh, from the helicopter and started going into survival mode. Well, an hour and a half later. Uh, just as we got bruise on, as it always happens with helicopters, they arrived then. <laughs> the Mark III came back and um, he said, we got one chance of this. You're all going to have to get onto it. Wow. Now, normally there's room for about four passengers in the back of the Mark III because of all the sonar gear that's in there, the dippers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, And so we piled on and with the crew, we had, I think it was 17 Instead of three in the back, there's 17 of you. Yeah, yeah we piled in. We were all stacked on top of each other, you know. Um, um, and we flew back down. And I can just remember as we flew down, looking out the, the, the door, because we couldn't close the door because people's legs were out of it. And, uh, 
and um, watching the rotor disc of the the, the rotors. You know, about two meters away from huge rock faces and stuff like that, and we were being blown all over the place. And we flew down onto the back of Antrim. Now, not what what normally happens is that you come down, the pilot mirrors the direction and speed of the ship, so he can just and he just crabs across and lands gently on the deck. Well, this wasn't going to happen. We <laughs> flew down there. The 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 deck crew were trying to wave him off, but um, the, our pilot said no. Sod this, and we just flew, and basically it was a controlled crash on the on the on the back deck of this this aircraft on the the, uh, the ship. And luckily, the, the the deck crew were really switched on, and they put the straps on, and we we all started piling out. Now you can imagine it's like you see these videos of minis with about twenty people getting out. <laughs> Oh, I don't know this. This and the strange thing was that we all get taken up to the um, the ward room, which was being used as a hospital on the ship time, and um, we were all treated for hypothermia and stuff like that. But nobody was bad enough, badly injured at all. It just cuts and bruises and stuff like that. That that was amazing, and and again, it's another reason why um, you do a selection process. You've got a rugged group who can cope. Now I'm. So impressed. There you are at 75 um, in great health doing ultra marathon. Have you not had any major injuries or major health scares during your time? Because when you put yourself through the kind of ordeals you did, the wet conditions, the trench for all the, the rest. And we're going to talk about another helicopter crash, which the whole book is named after in a minute. But all that you went through, have you not had major injuries, broken things or whatever? I, I snapped my Achilles tendon. That's the only um, serious injury I've had. I snapped it doing something stupid, going into, going up, uh, running out a ramp on an on an assault course, and being on a cold day, and we hadn't warmed up, and I just felt that the um, my ten, my tendon went. It felt like I'd just gone over on my ankle, and uh, but we did the, the the flipper test as they call it, but to see and the um, PGI we had working with us at the Long Range Recce School said, "I think Smash, I think you've snapped your tendon." And I thought, "Oh shit!" So we went down to the local German hospital, and they said, "I think you've snapped your tendon." And within three hours, I was on the slab and operated on, which well, was excellent. So that, I think that's why I recovered so so well from it, you know. Yeah, because a, a number of people doing what you and others would be doing have a whole string of injuries and later in life they're crambling around. But well done you, um, whether it be the hard upbringing in Gloucester uh, or, or whatever. But I think I think certain people have a more robust body to cope with what life throws at them when they do selection. Others, it was not meant to be. Do you think some, some are luckier than others? I think so. I, what we found on selection was it was never the really big six foot seven body, you know, sort of six packs and all that sort of stuff. They were the one, weren't the ones who got through. It was just little wiry guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, look, well done. Deep, deep respect for that. So, um, in in the Falcons War, you, you had some really exciting moments and, and lots of dull moments. But I, I was very taken by the account of going on to West Falcons, the Pebble Island, to take out those Picaras, which could have caused mayhem for the landing in San Carlos. Tell us a little bit about that. That was that was like boys' own stuff Sterling would have been proud of when you were going up and down, taking out the <laughs> aircraft, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Um... 
basically what happened was um, one of the um, Harrier jets had picked up a radar um, hit and they thought it would come from Pebble Island. So they flew a, flew a, um, a, a photo flight over it and it picked up there were aircraft and what looked like a radar on Pebble Island. And the Navy weren't too worried about the aircraft, but they are really worried about this this radar, which will give really early warning of, of the uh, the ships coming in to do the landings in San Carlos because because the island is solely at the mouth of San Carlos. So the plan came up that um, we would go and do this raid on on the island, and we, what we did was we put um, a eight guys ashore in clapper canoes to do the recce. They went off, did the recce, and said, yes, the aircraft are there. Um, looks like they're real. There's 11 aircraft. And so uh, they said, right, we're going in tonight. And it was the usual thing. All the, all the plans you want to make go tits up the minute you start sort of following the plan. And it started off with um, we, we were supposed to have been flying in about 10 o'clock at night. So 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock comes, it's blowing an absolute hooli outside on, on the on the deck of Hermes. And so they decide that they can't put the Sea Kings up onto the deck and open the, the um, rotors up on deck. So what they did was they actually, one by one, we had four aircraft, one by one they were put onto the ramp and opened the rotors up on, on the, um, the, the lift. The wow. Lift, yeah. Wow. And open them up and start the engines just turning. And then they they then lifted the, each aircraft up in turn onto the onto the deck. That took time, obviously. So we are now an hour and a half late. Um, we then got up and got onto the aircraft, and then they realised that they had too much fuel for the amount of weight they'd be carrying. So they had to burn off that fuel. That was another hour wasted hanging around. And eventually we got on, and we were the best part of three hours late starting. So the biggest enemy you always have is what's on your wrist, you know, your watch. Uh, time is always a problem. So we flew in, we arrived, met up with um, the troop commander of the recce party, and he then gave us a very quick brief. And then we set off like scalded cats trying to make up the difference, um, the time. And the amount of kit we were carrying, every man was carrying um Two mortar rounds for the for our close support weapon, and well, they weigh five kilos each, so that's ten kilos there. Plus, I was carrying that much ammunition. I had uh, two sixty-six millimeter law anti-tank rockets. I, I carried something like about four hundred rounds for my for my personal weapon, plus hand grenades and stuff like that, usual things. Anyway, we set off, and it was really really quick they, and it ended up with the guys at the front were going flat out and the guys at the back were running trying to keep up eventually we got down to the um the rally point and um what should have happened was a, a very seamless drop off the mortar bombs and keep going on but we ended up going into all-round defense at the rally point which was going to be the base but mortar base plate and what had happened was that um the troop that was actually going to had been tasked to do the actual assault on the air airstrip somehow had lost, um, got lost. They right. hadn't hadn't turned up, and 
my, our troop, 19th troop, was supposed to have been doing close support or uh, as a quick reaction force and staying at the rally point. And um, first we knew that uh, of the new plan as, you know, ongoing thing was that um, when John Hamilton came running back across to us, you know, virtually laughing with glee, saying, change of plan, we've got the airfield. So it, we now became the, the, the guys at actually attacking the airstrip itself. Now, us and um, 16 troops should have been going into the air, into the village and dealing with the crew, air crew and stuff like that. Time was against us again. So all that happened was the 16 troop then formed a screen between the airfield and the village, just in yep. case there's a counterattack. And then we moved in and uh, formed up, went on to the airstrip. And the, the plan was, I mean, the, the only plan I heard shout was, we'll make it up by ear. By, by John. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we got onto the airstrip and it, I just heard a show. Nobody crosses the airstrip. Anybody working on the right stays on the right. People stay on the left. So you, nobody's going to get shot. And we start, and most of the aircraft were on the left, as I remember. And John, with his gang, were placing charges on each of the aircraft to, in the same place on each plane, so that they couldn't bastardize um, three planes to make it one plane. So we're destroying the lot. And I was in charge of a gun team. And we were brassing up these um, aircraft on the other side, ones a bit further away with, with machine gun fire. I put two rockets through this sky van that was there and um, forgetting that it's not a tank and that the rockets just went straight through and they exploded off in the distance somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> and we were, um, you know, sort of just brassing these things up with the machine guns. And um, eventually... A fuel tank got ruptured and fuel was spilling out all over the ground. And the tracer round went into the fuel and just the, this huge atomic mushroom went up of the of the, the sky van. Anyway, we were on target for about 20 minutes. Then I heard um, Cedric saying, uh, withdraw, withdraw now. 16 troops up on their toes and gone. We were having so much fun on the airstrip <laughs> that it, it was a bit of a job getting everyone together. And as we, as we, just as we sort of consolidated ourselves and were just um, leaving, there was these huge explosions around us. And we thought initially what was happening was that Glamorgan, HMS Glamorgan, who was doing our close um, naval gunfire support, was having drop shorts. And everyone who had a radio was shouting, check fire, check fire. But what it was, was that the, there was um, a little outpost of Argentinians, which were on the air, edge, edge of the airstrip, who quite sensibly stayed completely below ground and didn't get out. And they had a, um, a, a detonator for these cratering charges that were on the airstrip. Mm. And they blew these, and that's what, what it was. They blew up. Well, wow. Anyway, we took a couple of casualties with guys hit by rocks and stuff like that. And we then started limping off the airstrip. And just as we're leaving the airstrip, um, the the Argentinians decided that they were going to be brave now and try and do a counterattack, which was a mistake. <laughs> uh, needless to say, they came second. 
they 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 took a couple of casualties and then they disappeared. They did they didn't want to know, and then we went back, um, post haste to the um, back to the um, the rally point. Um, aircraft came in smack on time, pile on the aircraft, um, flew across to the um, the where we initially um, landed, picked up the canoes um, which were there, and then we. Uh, Flew back to HMS Hermes just in time for breakfast. So, oh. job well done. Well, one hell of a story. One hell of a story. And, and as people are listening uh, to this, and your your whole experience, uh, Mark, not just uh, with the Falcons, but but in your service, if you could come up with sort of tips for people, a couple of leadership tips that you think are relevant, both in peace as in war. Anything comes to mind that, uh, you know, lessons learned from this? I mean, you've talked already about, you know, no plan survives the first meeting with the enemy and time and weather and, you know, uh, stuff breaking. And if it can go wrong, it will go wrong, making sure you have another plan. But any any lessons from you at this stage? Right. It's exactly as you said, you know, that no plan survives the first shot. Mm. Not once did we do anything on the on the Falklands where it went absolutely to plan. Mm. Everything had to be, we had to sort of think on your feet and, but you need to have that ability to think on your feet. You know, what's going to happen if this doesn't, doesn't work. No. Um, and that's how, how we do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's all you can say is that you just got to have an, a nimble mind. Yeah. But you know, don't be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Don't be sort of forced into one mindset on something. You've got to be able to drift left or right, and depending on the situation. Yeah, because you have all sorts of situations that that happened that you never saw coming. One of the things that strikes me in the book, and when you and I talked about a dark moment in your life, was um, the name of the book when the Sea King that you were in, transiting from ship to ship went down and you lost so many of your SES colleagues, but you somehow survived. Do you want to just talk about the moment when that happened and how many guys did you lose during that terrible tragedy? Right. We, um, we've been uh, told that uh, we're going in the right direction, but we're on the wrong ship. So we had to go from HMS Hermes onto Fearless because the uh, Intrepid, sorry, not Fearless. Reason being is they didn't want to take the the aircraft carrier actually into San Carlos water. They wanted to keep it outside. That was the reason we, we were doing a cross deck. Anyway, it was the last flight, apparently. Um, I can remember sitting with with about 30 other guys on the flight deck and um, helicopter coming in. Everyone piling on with their rucksacks and all this other stuff. You know, the aircraft is actually chocker. <clears throat> And uh, myself, Lawrence, and uh, a guy called Sid Davison were the last three to get onto the onto the aircraft. And I I knew I knew Dave Love, who was the um, the um, sort of uh, air crewman at the back. And I said, Dave, you know, there's not enough room on here. I'll, we'll wait for the next one. He said, No, Splash, you're going to have to get on this one because we're not doing any more flights tonight. So we piled on, and um, basically. There was no seats in it, so we all just sat on our rucksacks or on ammunition boxes and stuff like that inside the aircraft. And I was sat opposite the main cargo um, door at the back of the aircraft. 
which is on the port side. It's on the starboard side. And um, between me and the door was the air crewman, Lawrence and Sid. And um, we flew flew over, and I can remember flying over the deck of Intrepid, and bit, and there was an aircraft still on that was actually turning, the you know the rotors turning on the deck, and so our pilot, to give it time to, to lift off, took us off in a loop, and there was this, I can remember this being this very loud, bang if you like, and um, we next thing I knew we were underwater. And basically what happened, apparently um, an albatross or something had gone into the engine. Catastrophic failure. And we went into the into the sea at about 80 mile an hour and uh, immediately underwater. And the worst thing was that the aircraft tilted onto its right side. And uh, so that meant the door, my escape door, was actually facing downwards. So I there was no way I was going to get out through that. You can imagine what it was like in it, like inside there. There's 30 guys, masses of kit being thrown around, and you and underwater, everyone's fighting to survive. Um, I f- could feel people just stopping moving around me, and uh, <clears throat> the um, I was just about to sort of take that breath, the one that one that would completely kill me, uh, do me in. Um, and suddenly my head popped out into an air pocket and, uh, as the aircraft rose up on a wave. Okay, so the tail sort of popped out. And I just happened to be looking towards the tail of the aircraft. And the, the, what happens, the, 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 um, the tail rotor is snapped off, and I could see a ship in the distance, silhouette of a ship in the distance. By now... There was no movement in there at all. The guys that were to my right, Lawrence and Sid had gone, and and Dave. So I knew that the this hole, okay, I was underwater again. I knew this hole was um, the, a way out. So I, I went up through the 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 um, the tail, if you like, mm. and got to the 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 hole. And as I'm trying to climb out of it. I realized that I couldn't get through because of, I was too big. And what it was, was my fighting order, my belt order was stopping me. So I ditched my belt order. And I, just as I was climbing out, I looked to my left and I could see a few guys around one of these little life rafts about 30 meters away. So I, I jumped down into the water, swam across them and joined up with the rest of the guys. And that, that was the escape from that, from that helicopter. Well, uh, I mean, just can't imagine what it's like. And again, this is where all that training you had and and just the putting yourself through your paces uh, on selection and everything else you've done throughout your career pays off. But you can never really get over a a moment like that. I'm sure, do you find, uh, I mean, a member of your colleagues, I've had uh, friends of mine who did uh, P Company with me, uh, talking about the PTSD they'd had, do you find you get flashbacks to those moments and, and relive them, or have you managed to somehow come to terms with it? I, 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 um, I think I've come to terms with it myself. I do get a bit um, written in the eye and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but 
strangely enough, there were nine of us that survived the the two the two pilots and then um, seven soldiers. Four of them were badged SES guys. Uh, of those nine, there's only one who has actually been got a diagnosis of PTSD, hmm. and he was one of the um, uh, G Squadron signaler that was one of the one of the other guys that survived. Yeah, but the the rest of us. Um, I think I think I, I honestly don't know why I don't get it. Maybe I'm just a hard-hearted twat. Like, <laughs> I but, um, um, I, I, I think I've come to terms with it. Mm. Is what it, what it is. But I, I still, um, you know, <clears throat> it still upsets me sometimes. Yeah, uh, under, uh, completely understandably. Um, because, you know, you lost some really good people. And one of the people that you and I were talking about who really was a very fine leader was someone that when I joined the Green Howards, I heard about this man and they spoke of him in in with deep respect and what a tragedy that he was killed in the Falklands uh, as, a troop, as your troop commander, it turns out, small world. And uh, I just want to go to the, the moment of when this happened, when captain john hamilton got his military cross but he also lost his life um it was an operation i understand on on west falklands observing the different settlements there just towards the end of the war when there's quite a lot of troops there could do some real damage uh and you had a number of observation posts out and his one was in a tricky situation where he and his uh uh, I think one of the operators was with him and then two others were further away. But one of the Argentinian special forces patrols came upon it and there was this firefight. Do you want to take it from that stage, Mark, what happened? Yeah, I obviously wasn't wasn't actually in, involved with that that um, incident. But having spoken to um, the signaler that, who was captured, um, basically what happened was that the... Um, They'd split the OP into two, so there was um, half the guys were actually observing, and half the guys were something about six hundred meters away in a, in a hide. The guys in the hide saw a twelve-man Argentinian patrol moving along the ridge, and they knew that they would um, come across the OP. Um, they tried to to tell them, but the um, but the radio, as they always do when you want mm, them, mm. the VHF radio, okay, uh, which they were using voice on, uh, failed, and they d didn't get it. So it was heard on on board ship in the in the ops room. They could hear it all happening. Mm. And basically, what happened was that the um, the the Argentine patrol came up, spied the um, OP. A firefight started, um, and John told Roy to move, and they were doing the, the classic pepper potting out, you know, what we call pepper potting, you know, fire maneuver out. Yeah. John got hit in the back on his move and um, went down, and he, he told Roy, he said, I, I'm not going to be able to move. You ca you carry on, I'll cover you out. And basically, um, Roy then started to move back and then Roy ran out of ammunition basically he was having trouble changing his magazine and the rounds were clipping all around him and uh, <clears throat> he then just shouted stop put his hands up 
and that he was captured. Unfortunately, um, John um, was dead by the time they got back to him, and mm. that, that was it. But um, then Roy was taken off. John was buried with full military honours in, in at Port Howard. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, his grave is still there. Vicky, his wife, uh, asked him to stay there. And probably one of the most beautiful places in the whole islands where he's been laid to rest. So. Yeah, what a what a a special man, and he was your yeah. troop commander. Um, and and Cedric was also your squadron commander. Uh, have you caught up with Cedric over the years since then? Um, I I kept bumping into him um, over the years. I mean, one of the classic ones was was when I was a sergeant major at um, Warminster in my last sort of four years there, and um, he was um, general officer training or something like that he was a he was a lieutenant general anyway and uh i can remember being warned that the 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 general officer training was coming um and i just sort of blend into my office got out of the way and uh him and his entourage about 20 of these senior officers came wandering in and he walked past my door and so, suddenly stopped looked in he says flash came in closed the door and all these senior officers, these colonels and whatever, are all stood out in the in the hall, and we sat there for about half an hour having a cup of coffee and a, and a chin wag. And then he went out and then carried on with his visit, like you know. And then the next time after, really, I saw him after that was when he um, um, agreed to a meetup when we were formulating the book and uh, yeah. chatting. So the uh, the whole aim was that um, the book would be. My book would be a um, would merge with his, if you know what I mean. That there yeah. would be no, no differences in it. Yeah, yeah. That was it. And, yeah. and I've also I've also really enjoyed reading his book, Across an Angry Sea, by Lieutenant General Sir Cedric Delves. And the two do come together really well. In a you know, he was thinking strategically what was going on, but but as you say, he went forward to um, uh, that that. You know, mountain. Uh, what was it called again? Um, Kent. Kent. Uh, we're waiting yeah. for four two commando, um, and, and yours is is a lovely view of of the both the excitement, but also the the tedium and the the, the fuck around factor as they talk about it, and you know, moving from ship to ship, and but just taking it in your stride. And as as uh, Jose Sanchez said to me, he said. You're definitely going to have to have uh, Splash Ashton because anybody who can talk about such a tragedy as the Sea King going down, everybody dying in there, in in Arctic waters, and he just says it was a bit chilly. That's the kind of <laughs> understatement that you want. That's the kind of British reserve that we have. But but look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, it's very hard for people like myself and others who haven't been in that situation uh, to relate. But I think um, it would be be perhaps nice just to leave us with uh, a top leadership tip, a practical tip, you know, for you all your way up from private soldier to regimental sergeant major and having fought with the SAS in the Falklands War. Could you just basically uh, introduce yourself, say say who you are and the book you wrote and then leave us with your two-minute top leadership tip, Mark. So over to you for the final bit of the, of the show. Just a sec. 
I've got it written down. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Right. Okay. For those that don't know, I joined the army in 64 as a boy uh, with no formal qualifications at all. I entered man service, as they called it then, in 1966 and went to the Gloucestershire Regiment. And I served in Berlin, Minden, Belize, Canada, and Northern Ireland. Um, I was a corporal at age 20, which is quite quick, um, in charge of 10 guys on operations in Northern Ireland in the early 70s when this was the shooting war. Okay, so there was never an officer around when you needed one. Everything was down to us. We, we, we did it, the junior NCOs. Uh, within five years... I was a platoon sergeant and then finally a platoon commander. Um, and then I realized that my days were gone as a, as a operational soldier. I was going to be, I'd be farmed out to training jobs and stuff like that. So I thought, nah, I'm too young. I'm 20, 28 years old. I'm still got things that I need to do. So I did selection in 1978 and passed it. And then I once again served all over the world doing different things, which I tell you about, but I'd have to kill you. And then, <laughs> and, uh, then went on um, to my big highlight of my whole service, really, which was the Falklands War. And I um, took part in, I'd say, taking of South Georgia, the raid on Pebble Island, and taking of Mount Kent. I was later. After I finished the army, uh, wrong. I um, went on to training jobs. Really, I was the, the chief instructor at the International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School in in Bavaria. Then I went back to um, UK and started up the infantry light roll course. Um, uh, was doing that for about five years and brought it to the. Um, to one of the main promotion courses that's recognized in the army. And then I went off to um, train parachutists at Bryce Norton as the RSM mm -hmm. parachute. And uh, my, my ruling was that I would do the first descent on every course. Wow. My, so if the old boy, the old gray haired bugger can do it, then I can do it. That was my, my um, mantra, mantra on it. And then after that, I was posted to Warminster as a uh, the divisional sergeant major for the company commander's courses, uh, that where I learned how to chase cats, basically. <laughs> senior officers are paying the arse. Um, and then I, I, I actually retired from, from uniform service there. And I went off to um, just across the square, basically, into another office as a civilian uh, civil servant, working for the Infantry Trials and Development Unit, um, producing urgent operational requirements for the guys working in Afghanistan and Iraq and that sort of thing. Cool. And since uh, I, I retired in 2013, I'm basically a, a professional dog walker. <laughs> <laughs> for my, my border Terry, who is now across my feet, actually, at the moment, and farting. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my dog. And uh, basically, my, my days are spent completely retired. Um, I 
spend them training, um, training for ultras, doing ultras. I cycle, I do Pilates, all that sort of stuff. I'm basically staying alive, hopefully. <laughs> okay. Um, and finally, I've co-written a book with Colonel Stuart Tootle about my experiences during the Falklands War called SES Seeking Down, and I recommend it. You can buy it on Amazon. No <laughs> well, that's brilliant, Mark. And what would be your top, as a practical soldier, what would be your top leadership tip for anybody listening? You know, a bit of sound wisdom that served you well. Okay, the first thing is you need to know the guys that you're working with. You've got to be approachable. They need you need they need to know that they can come to you if they've got problems or whatever. Always set an example. Okay, so be a good guy. You know, mm. and lead from the front. And the, the main thing is that loyalty goes down as well as up. If the guys know that you've got their back, they'll definitely look after yours. Yeah. There you go. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mark Splash Ashton, uh, the author of SAS Seeking Down, a definite good read. And thank you for sharing your stories and thank you for your service to our country to free the Falklands Islands and uh, to be there for your colleagues. It was a real pleasure and an honour having you on the show. Namaste. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.